This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Mary Krieger. I am delighted to have as my guest today Rebecca Madelon, curator of the exhibition Tongues Untied, a presentation of the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, which looks back at art from the AIDS crisis. The exhibition is on view through September 13th, 2015 at the Pacific Design Center Mocha Space in West Hollywood and coincides with the 30th anniversary of the city of West Hollywood. Rebecca Madelon is a curatorial assistant at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. She is co-founder with Summer Guthrie and Gladys Katerina Hernando of the nonprofit space Joan, which hosts talks, screenings, performances, solo projects, and vitrine shows with a focus on emerging and underrecognized artists. Tongues Untied is her first curated museum exhibition. Thank you so much for doing this interview. My pleasure. I thought we would start with, um, how did the show come about? Did, did the city of West Hollywood come to you and say, we want to do a show? Did Mocha go to them? You know, what, what was the backstory on, on how the show came to be? Sure. So, um, there had, uh, originally been, uh, a, a different exhibition planned, a traveling show that for one reason or another just wasn't able to happen. And, I had been the uh, curatorial assistant assigned to organize that traveling show from MOCA's end to work with the non-MOCA curators. And in my work on that, I had come across, through the, the guidance and support of Helen Molesworth, who is our chief curator, I had come across Marlon Riggs' film, Tongues Untied, from 1989. And when that exhibition that had originally been planned for Mocha Pacific Design Center to coincide with the 30th anniversary of the city of West Hollywood. When that exhibition fell through and Helen asked that I organize a similarly themed exhibition based on Mocha's own permanent collection holdings, I really wanted to move forward from Riggs's film, which had really been influential in my thinking around the, the previous show. So despite the fact that, you know, I should say Riggs film is not in our collection, it, it's such a landmark film. And I, when, after I'd watched it, I, I was just so amazed by it and sort of um, curious or, or confused why I hadn't come across it before, either as a um, an undergraduate uh, art history major or in graduate school. It's just such an incredible, really beautiful, poetic narrative as well as documentary as well as experimental film that touches on so many different aspects of this particular moment of the AIDS crisis. But the idea of tongues untied, just the, just the words tongues untied, sort of encapsulates that whole period mm-hmm. in yeah. a way. Um, or, or was that your thought or your idea? Yeah, well, you know, it, in relation to Riggs' film, it's very much about the sort of silence surrounding black gay identity, both from within African-American communities that are themselves quite are historically homophobic or unaccepting of queerness. There's sort of this double of tongues untied in, ge- in general surrounding queerness and AIDS crisis and um, specificity as well of being black, of being gay, and of being black and gay, like being able to 
speak truth to power is definitely something that's wrapped up in the idea of tongues untied or finally speaking out or refusing a kind of silence or lack of reflection of one's personal identity in the mainstream media. You know, the kinds of representations of um, African Americans, not only just queer, but the sort of caricatures that persist and really having to deal with uh, refusing to remain silent anymore. <laughs> and also the, the whole idea of the silence at the time, even though, you know, I was just watching recently the uh, film that came out on HBO, Larry Kramer, about his story and ACT UP and, you know, that whole period, that there was silence, period, around the AIDS crisis. Oh, yeah. The show definitely um, focuses on artists and works that are refusing that kind of silence. You know, you have Reagan, who, for the majority of his presidency, refuses to name, to say AIDS, refuses to acknowledge and because of this kind of silence and this really suspect, willful negligence by our government, you have the sort of mass death of um, an entire generation and community of, for the majority, men, but also drug users and the devastation that was wrought on not only the art community, but on gay culture is unfathomable still. And I think that part of what's interesting or what was important in talking with Helen about this exhibition was that I am relatively younger than her. And my experience of this time period of the AIDS crisis is significantly different. I didn't lose contemporaries. I didn't lose friends or lovers or colleagues. I was younger and it was very much still a reality to me having grown up in New York. But what could be important about an exhibition like this or who this exhibition is for, as well as people that are more familiar with these artists and the works and this historical period of the AIDS HIV crisis, is there's also hopefully an entire generation that regardless whether they are familiar with the AIDS crisis as a kind of historical footnote or have more of a personal history with it, that this show can be for my generation. Exactly. That's why I'm interviewing you, because I think it's so interesting for you to come along and see these art with a fresh eye, somebody without that history, and how you respond to that, I think makes it really very interesting. Why don't we just go in, like, sort of piece by piece, you know, through the exhibition, you walk into the show, you see this plaque by Karen Finley mm -hmm. called Black Sheep. Mm -hmm. can, can you discuss that piece and tell us why you put that in the show? Sure. So just to give um, a bit of background, the downstairs or the, the first floor gallery was intended as a presentation of archival documents that addressed MOCA's history of queer-related programming from the early 90s. For the most part, that was the way I thought about downstairs, having that space be a reflective place where we could think about MOCA's own dedication to this political and crisis uh, of AIDS. The Finley work is actually a permanent collection work. It's two bronze plaques. It's called Black Sheep, and it's from 1990. And it was originally uh, mounted in concrete in New York's Lower East Side, it was a commission of uh, Creative Time with Karen Finley. Uh, creative Time is a New York City-based nonprofit. 
I guess that's the best way to describe them. And so Black Sheep uh, features a nine-stanza poem that was written by Finley and sort of details life lived in opposition to mainstream society, um, as well as contextualized by having, by seeing people and continually meeting people at funerals. It's about it's about living life as an outsider and about coming to terms with that kind of outsider status and building from that a alternative familial community. In some ways, that kind of notion, which is also being addressed in Riggs's film, this idea of like creating communities. You know, when when Riggs says, I know I'm jumping around, but when Riggs says black men black men loving black men is the revolutionary act, that's not just about romantic or sexual love. That's about friendship. That's about dedication to a community, a support system, and a kind of alternative family for people who have made life choices that, let's say, their families don't agree with and are not supportive of. But so that, as the first work, was important to me. And then you put in a case this performance that she did at, at the Museum of Contemporary Art. You show documentation of performances. Yeah, so the, the vitrine that's in that space has a selection of documents related to three different programs that MOGA was involved with, one of which was an exhibition titled Memento Mori, which was at MOGA in 1992. And for one part, it was sort of a two-part exhibition, and one part of the installation was called The Memorial Room, and it featured Finley's writing and ink paint on the walls for sick beds tended by live performers and to public grieving areas. It was, in a way, Finley's response to the impact of AIDS and traditions of mourning and intended to function as a kind of space for a collective expression of grief. In the vitrine are a selection of installation photographs from that project, as well as a very early artist statement about the project by Finley and the two poems that had been written on the walls at MOCA, as well as a letter condemning a sale of a T-shirt that had a photograph of the Virgin Mary, I believe, by the a representative of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. That was so great. You included that. A letter to Richard Cashella, the director of the museum. Yes, yes. You know, and it's so funny. And so basically what I did is I, um, we have a tremendous amount of files off-site, and I just sort of brought all the files related to that exhibition as well as the other exhibitions or programs that are documented in the vitrine. I had them brought over, and it was pretty incredible to go through, particularly the Finley files, because there was a tremendous uh, public response to that exhibition that ranged from condemnation to acclaim, and it's sort of really interesting to see the way that the museum, Richard Koshalek, the director, and Julie Lazar, who was the curator of that project, responded to those claims or the questions regarding the exhibition. Unfortunately, it wasn't possible to include everything, but I thought that the uh, the letter regarding the, the image of the Virgin Mary on a T-shirt sold in the MOCA store was a fascinating document to sort of contextualize that project and also the sort of cultural climate of the time. And to remember, this is the time before antiviral drugs, it was a specific kind of time where people were just dying everywhere. Yeah, this is 
I'm not sure when AZT is developed, but it's extremely toxic and still being withheld. And this is a time that is before the quote-unquote cocktail is, is invented around or I guess around, I believe it's 96, 95, 96, when the combination of antiretroviral medications that allows for one to continue living with HIV is created. I mean, this is when people are just dying right and left because there's really nothing that is being done to help out or there is, you know, I don't want to say there's nothing. The response is slow from the American government. Right. Right. Now, then you have audio. One one audio piece is it Ron? It's by Ron Vodder, and it's actually it's Ron Vodder reading the text that Ron Vodder, who was a um, a member and founder of the Wooster Group. So talk about that piece, that Roy Cohn piece. The work is called Roy Cohn, Jack Smith, and it was performed at MoCA in 1992. And so Ron Vodder was a member of the Rooster Group, and um, it was a Roy Cohn Jack Smith was a two-part solo theater piece conceived and performed by Vodder. The first part, Roy Cohn, was written by Gary Indiana and featured Vodder as Roy Cohn, the notorious anti-gay right-wing lawyer and closeted homosexual, delivering a fictional speech. The Jack Smith section was drawn from an audio recording of the avant-garde filmmaker and performance artist Smith's 1981 performance, What's Underground About Marshmallows. The stage set, which was quite incredible, particularly for the Jack Smith section, featured a throne by artist Elizabeth Murray and a slideshow that was based on Smith's own slideshow presentation. To give some background, Roy Cohn is most famous, infamous, as an advisor to McCarthy during the trial of the Rosenbergs, was a lawyer and became incredibly involved in anti-homosexual political kind of family values organizations in in the 80s. Um, Very vocal, homophobic political figure who himself succumbed to AIDS, though denied the fact that he had AIDS until his death and I believe claimed that he was dying of cancer. So that is one half of the project. Vodder performs as if giving a speech in a suit and then rattles on. It's supposed to be a speech given to the Association for the Protection of Family Values, which is relatively based on a real speech that uh, Cohen gave. And then the second half, again, is from Jack Smith's What's Underground About Marshmallows. Um, So what's really interesting about the project is that it's sort of a double portrait of two radically different men, both of whom were homosexual and both of whom died of of complications related to AIDS and their individual approaches to sexuality. Yeah, I would really encourage people to go into the – obviously to see the show, but to take the time to listen to this audio – Mm-hmm. The next one is the, uh, the video next to it, which is the last time I saw Ron. Yes, that video by Leslie Thornton is, is not in our collection, actually. I think that a lot of people are not as familiar with Ron Vodder, a way of opening up that archival space to also have more poetic and visual aspect was to include this film. Um, the last time I saw Ron from 1994 by... Leslie Thornton. It depicts footage of 
Vader's final theatrical appearance, conceived by uh, Dutch theater director Jan Ritzema. Um, and the play was based on the Greek myth of Philoxides, the ancient warrior who incurs a wound that festers and who is subsequently banished. And that would be uh, Vader's final theatrical performance. He actually cut the run short and um, unfortunately succumbed to complications from AIDS on his plane back from um, the performance. But it's really striking portrait of Vader as he was dying from AIDS. It's just a really um, beautiful, pulsating, but also poetic um, depiction of Vader in costume in, in as he was performing. Yes. On the opposite wall, you have these two posters, which was a Grand Fury, a collective in, in New York that grows out of the ACT UP organization that did why don't you tell it? Uh, what was this uh, particular piece? So there are two posters. Right. Um, the title is Women Don't Get AIDS, They Just Die From It. And there are two posters. One is in English and one is in Spanish. So from, from February through March of 1991, uh, MOCA and the Public Art Fund New York co-organized a bus shelter project by Grand Fury. And as you're, you're, you mentioned, uh, Grand Fury grew out of ACT UP, and it was founded in 1988. They were sort of committed to addressing the AIDS crisis through a variety of visual projects, most notably in the form of posters and billboards. Um, for this bus shelter project, these posters were installed in over 100 locations, both in Los Angeles and New York, and printed in both English and Spanish in Los Angeles. I'm not sure if they were um, bilingual in New York. And the poster features an image of Miss America contestants, and it is overlaid by informational text highlighting the Center for Disease Control's sort of inadequate definition of AIDS. You know, they did many posters, they did many projects. Is this the only one they did with uh, MOCA? Yeah, this is, and to my understanding, this is the only project that they did with MOCA, and it was it was a, in coordination with the Public Art Fund, organized on MOCA's end by Ann Goldstein. And so the, the text that was overlaid on the poster read, 65% of HIV-positive women get sick and die from chronic infections that don't fit the Center for Disease Control definition mm-hmm. um, of AIDS. Yes. Without that recognition, women are denied access to what little health care exists the CDC must expand the definition of AIDS. I just wanted to put out there that uh, if people want to see uh, other projects, that the New York Public Library website has all the Grand Fury projects on their website. Yes, they're incredible resources. One of the yeah. amazing things about Grand Fury is that um, we, I mean, I definitely, I worked with members of Grand Fury just to work through the reproduction of these posters. But the what's wonderful about Grand Fury is that no one owns these images. They are fully intended to be reproduced and distributed without the need of permission. Um, that is to say that it's always <laughs> wonderful to contact um, artists or collectives to let them know what you're doing, but they don't they don't hold the rights. Right. This is something that they really intended to be sort of guerrilla style distributed, we pasted, which is what, what they were doing in the 80s. So great. Um, okay, so then we, you go up the stairs and you come into the, the large room. You do have a, a screen 
You're screening the song? Tons and Tide screens every hour on the hour. It's about um, 55 minutes long. It's, it's feature length. People are sitting there and watching yes. all of it, which is, makes me absolutely thrilled. We brought in there are about 20 theater seats. Yes, I was going to ask um, you about that. Is that, a, is that an artwork or is that? It's not. It's not. Yeah, that's not the first time I was asked that. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, we, the museum purchased those seats for a previous exhibition. Oh. And, um, when, when I was thinking about how to really make Tongues Untied, the film, a centerpiece in the exhibition, I really wanted to be able to have an environment where not only, you know, individuals could come and watch the whole thing, but the possibility that someone would maybe want to bring their class, that a teacher or professor would want to come and really provide space for students to watch Tongues and Tide in its full duration. It is not available online and to my knowledge has not historically been presented in this context, that meaning within um, the space of an exhibition. It has been included in exhibitions in sort of segmented or separated screening rooms, dedicated screening rooms. But to my knowledge, this is the first exhibition that is really placing the film in relation to objects. Yes. Other objects. Yes. The first piece that you see when you go up the stairs is Felix uh, Gonzalez Torres piece. And you have Mm -hmm. two uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres pieces in the exhibition. Can you talk about those two pieces? Sure. Um, So both of those works, again, are part of MoCA's collection. We own a total of six Gonzalez Torres works. So great. And the first one that you see when you come to stairs is titled Untitled March 5th, number two, from 1991. It's a wall mounted sculpture that contains two 40 watt light bulbs. It's one of many light strings made by Gonzalez Torres. Each comprises a cord or cords strung with light bulbs and can be installed for the most part at the owner's discretion on the floor or across a wall, inside or outside. However, this work is unique in that it must always be hung vertically on the wall. It's composed of two 40-watt bulbs placed at the end of each of two cords, and it's actually the first light string by the artist and was made around the time of the death of his life partner, Ross Laycock. And the date, March 5th, is also uh, referenced to Laycock, and it's that it's his birthday. So, looped over a nail, the bulbs touch and glow together with a sort of latent possibility that one could burn out before the other. It's the first time that we're exhibiting this work. It's a relatively recent acquisition from 2012, and um, it's an incredibly simple, elegant, and really moving work, particularly installed at the top of a staircase, kind of calling, or not calling to, but, you know, drawing a viewer up. There was intention in the installation of that work at the top of the staircase as the sort of first work to be seen um, within the second floor gallery. I just wanted to talk about the other Felix Gonzalez tourists working here, the uh, the Bocci's Candies. Yeah, so that, that work, um, untitled uh, A Corner of Bocci, is from 1990. And um, it consists of 42 pounds of Perugina bachi chocolates that are spilled in the corner. As with other works by the artist, including 
entitled March 5th, number two, the work exists first as a, as a certificate of authenticity or ownership, um, which was a structure developed by Gonzalez Torres that allows the work to be on view in multiple places simultaneously and also allows the owner or exhibition organizer to choose within certain parameters how to display the work. So despite the fact that this the title of this work is entitled A Corner of Bocce. The chocolates could be placed in a line along a wall or in, in other candy works uh, by Gonzalez Torres. He, you can display them sort of as a, a kind of carpeted along the ground. But so what's really wonderful about, about this work, uh, and of course bocce means kiss, is that it's the exhibition organizer also makes the decision whether to let the candies, which can be taken by viewers, completely disappear or to replenish the weight of 42 pounds. And so this sort of gradual diminishing and replenishing of chocolate suggests both a kind of withering away as well as an eternal regeneration, which is also an articulation of loss and renewal. So I think that what's interesting about the exhibition is that there are a number of, I mean, it's a small exhibition, but there are a number of works that are considerably more didactic or direct, and Gonzalez Torres' work are more abstract, or they are coming out of a history of conceptualism, um, particularly a, a moment in the 90s in particular in which artists were reconsidering the parameters of um minimal or conceptual practices from the 70s. So you have Gonzalez Torres, who is reclaiming a kind of subjectivity or personal practice within conceptualism. So these works are, and a, a lot of Gonzalez Torres' work functions like this as, as portraiture in a way, either of a body through a specific weight of candy. This one, the 42 pounds, does not necessarily refer to a specific person, but other ones do, either the weight of, of Laycock, his lover, or the combined weight of Gonzalez Torres and Laycock. Then we come to the Ross Bleckner piece. There's a drawing of Ross. Why do you include that drawing? Is that an image of the AIDS virus? He did a series of works that are watercolors on papers that have this biological. So it's it's an untitled work from 1988, and it's also in our collection. So Blackner, who has continued practice to this day, was in many ways addressing the AIDS crisis or making work at this moment in a more abstract. So I wasn't interested in showing work, like having an entire exhibition of work about I'm not really sure what that means. You know, right. I think that there are so many different readings that one can have from, say, a work like Felix Gonzalez Torres's. Like, to deny the fact that Gonzalez Torres was working in response, not necessarily in response to, but at a moment that is conditioned by the AIDS HIV crisis would be problematic. But so is reducing his work to being about AIDS. And not only that, redu um, reducing these artists to be only about AIDS. Exactly. And I think that that's something that is a continuous struggle when having an exhibition that claims to look at a particular period, which is why that there are obvious ways in which AIDS is being addressed in Riggs' film, in, in 
the John Boscovich work, right. which we can talk about, that are very outspoken. But to say that that's the only issue that these artists are dealing with and that that's the sort of framework in which these works can need be read is problematic. So I think that part of the reason for um, including works, say, by Jack Pearson or Ross Blechner or Felix Gonzalez-Torres was to elaborate on or to flesh out the period. The way. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the John Boscovich pieces. Sure. So the John Boscovich work um, is called the It Series and um, dates from 1992 to 96. And um, it's comprised of 38 matted and framed Polaroid photographs taken in and around the artist's Los Angeles home. And images of everyday objects and intimate encounters are presented alongside affirmations from a a self-help book. And the anecdote there is that uh, when Boscovich's friend was dying of AIDS in the hospital, someone had brought him a book titled Love Lines, Affirmations for Mind, Body, and Spirit by a woman named Joyce Strom. And this sort of ridiculousness of the rhetoric of self-help. I am a unique person. Like, I have plenty of time today. Which isn't to say that culture of affirmation of self-help isn't important or... But he wasn't buying it, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Boscovich wasn't buying right. it, and there was the reality of a statement like, I have plenty of time today, which just wasn't necessarily the case for a large number of, of people at this time. What's interesting and really powerful about this work is the sort of explicit depiction of sex and recreational drug use, which is deadpan and really pointedly unsensational, which is in many ways a kind of refutation of how quickly the media sought to stigmatize the victims of HIV AIDS and the kinds of representation of AIDS victims that were portrayed at the time and this sort of refusal of pleasure. And in, in a lot of ways, this work, which is installed salon style on the wall, is a refusal of that. The photographs also show Boscovich's interest in traditions of portraiture and still life. So it's working from a kind of history of documentary photography as well as not a completely different way, a history of conceptualism. I think that one thing that's really interesting about the exhibition is that the works by Gonzalez-Torres and John Boscovich are radically different, but they are both working at this moment where artists are rethinking the structures, uh, conceptual and minimal art. They're, they're reframing them in the 90s and, as I said before, like incorporating or making claims for a kind of subjectivity, for personal expression in a kind of practice that had historically been understood as emptied of, let's say, subjectivity, which is maybe a kind of glossing over of a lot of nuances in the historical reception of conceptual art and minimal art. But what's interesting about the Boscovich work is the way it moves between satire and gallows humor, yes. you know, the way... But also know, the solemnity. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the ones that, the Kaddish, you know, the ones of, of those, which, by the way, don't have text. He has a portrait of 
this artist with with dead boyfriend, um, uh, and that's a very you know it's a solemn piece. So yeah. so he he does have that that aspect, but then he moves in in and out of uh, satire, like you say. Yeah, you know, and I think it's his refusal of shame. It's about pleasure as well as the devastation again of AIDS. I didn't necessarily say this before, but this period of 92 to 96 that Boscovich is documenting is very much this sort of chronicling and culminating in the death of Stephen Arabino, um, who you talk about, who was um, his partner for a time, which is the Kaddish image. And I think, for example, one of the images, as well as being humorous and explicit in in their sexuality, there's a kind of intimacy to this work, you know. Let's say in in one of the ones which is titled Last Photo Taken of Dead Boyfriend, an image of Arabino is is offset by the sloganistic aphorism, I have plenty of time today, which is kind of maddening. Right. Um, as you know that Arabino was was succumbing to And he was thirty two years old. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's that's another um aspect of this exhibition that a number of the artists would die before reaching the age of 50. So um, Gonzalez Torres and, and Riggs both died from AIDS-related complications. He experienced tremendous loss, and he is really an interesting artist, born and raised in Southern California, and unfortunately relatively unknown. You know, he, he showed with Rosamund Felsen Gallery, um, and had a number of solo exhibitions there and created a really interesting body of work, studied at Tal Arts, and had uh, a kind of career or practice that was also in a lot of ways about collaboration. He is perhaps best known for his work with Sandra Bernhardt, um, Without You, I'm Nothing, which was, um, you know, a, a kind of one-woman show um, that was then uh, turned into uh, a Broadway show that was then turned into a film, but was also a collaborator with Gary Indiana for North, um, another another film he did. This is one of several works by Boscovich that Mocha owns, and I should also say it's only the second time that we've exhibited this work. Um, the first was within a much larger retrospective exhibition titled um, Index California Conceptualism or something of that nature. And this was a work that I had come across in our permanent collection maybe shortly after I, I began at MOCA um, about nearly two years ago. And I had not been familiar with his work. I started doing some research into Boscovich as well as, you know, uh, Krista Montagna, who is his cousin and the, um, I guess, official estate manager at this moment, came in just because I was having a hard time really finding information on, on John's work. And um, I think that um, I'm hoping that this exhibition, um, not only in itself giving space to this work, but to create a space for a continued reception of, of Boscovich's work. You know, I, I, Gonzalez Torres is a much, much better known artist, and uh, my hope is that through this exhibition that people can maybe start thinking about John's work more. Wonderful, wonderful. To finish up, uh, the um, I just wanted to ask you about the Nan Goldens and the Jack mm-hmm. Pearson piece. Yeah, those two artists. 
Sure, and I can also, if, if you'd like, talk more about Briggs' actual film. Um, oh, absolutely, so absolutely, detail. yes. Um, so there are, two, there are two Jack Pearson works included in the exhibition. One um, is a uh, graphite-on-paper drawing from 94 called Dreams Die Easy, and I believe it was originally exhibited in 1994 at Regan Projects. The text that is written on the work says, Hush, dreams die easy, believe me, your mouth, your roses, I put your name in lights. And this work was in a solo exhibition that included a, a number of his better-known word pieces constructed from marquee lettering, ones that say, let's say, hopeless, helpless. This was one of several drawings that was included in the exhibition and is very much about this kind of idea of memorialization or creating a space for mourning. He was, as well, sort of working within this particular moment, is, continues to have a practice. And the other work is a photograph from 1992 called Untitled, which is also a sort of more abstracted portrait, which appears to have a man sitting on a bed in what could be a hotel room. So those two works are also from our permanent collection, and they, in a similar way, particularly the photograph, in a similar way to the Lechner, opened up the space of the exhibition to a more, not open-ended, but to thinking about the historical context of this moment and the kind of work that was being made. What what about the piece? It looked like it was a Brillo boxes, but it was Trojan boxes. Sure, um, that's by an artist named Adam Ralston. It's called Trojans from 1991, mm. and so there are um, eleven boxes, ink on cardboard boxes, and they look as though as what, what you're describing is that they're 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 boxes that look somewhat akin to Warhol's Brillo boxes, yeah. but um, What's interesting about these is that they are actually handmade. They aren't. Um, they aren't found. Um, and so, what what the artist has done is added a line on the boxes that says for protection during anal and vaginal intercourse, um, which is a sort of a slight kind of um, manipulation of the boxes. It would never have said that. Um, and I'm actually not sure what text is on Trojan condom boxes now. And um, that was actually, to my understanding, part of a much larger project that Ralston did. I think that there were about 100 boxes made, and he sold them really cheaply, and it was a sort of massive installation. Those have also maybe only been exhibited once or twice at MOCA, Um but have been in our, our collection for a number of years, since 93, actually. Maybe uh, just tell us you know, generally what you want our, your audience to come away with when they see this show about this particular journey that you've been on, curating it. I think that um, it, it, would be, it would be difficult for me to say um, what I want um, but what I'm hoping an audience response is, you know, I think that it's never really possible. Um, I, I'm not sure if this is your question. I'm not really sure it's ever possible to know what kind of a response an exhibition will have. You know, it's my hope that 
um, as I said, people of my generation and younger generations who experienced the HIV-AIDS crisis as children or as teenagers or who were born after the invention of the cocktail and have sort of little or no understanding of the crisis beyond a historical, as a historical footnote, um, will see the show. That's not to say that I don't hope that people who experienced firsthand the tremendous loss due to HIV-AIDS won't to the exhibition, but I think that particularly Riggs's film and the work by Boscovich, there's, there's another photograph by an artist named Catherine Wagner that is a, a gelatin sil- silver print of the virus HIV uh, in its storage, which is from um, a larger series of photographs in which she uh, documented diseases, uh, I believe, at the Human Genome Project. Um, it's called Negative 86 Degrees Freezer. For me, the, this exhibition really starts with Riggs' film, which, just to give a, a bit more information about that, is a really sort of a, a lyrical and rhythmic collage of image and sound that sort of mixes scenes from the Castro District in San Francisco and New York's LGBT culture with stage performances, talking head interviews, and and Riggs's account of his own experience growing up as a black man, a black gay man. Um, and I should also say that Tongues Untied began as um, for Riggs as a, from a desire to create a kind of visual anthology of a community of black gay poets based in New York City and moved from there. I think Briggs, to my understanding, realized that would need to also have autobiographical um, aspect to it. Um, you know, it's 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 Riggs' best-known film. He created, I believe, five or six films before his untimely death due to complications from AIDS. But, you know, the, the film gives visibility to a community of poets and activists um, and captures their personal experiences of racism and homophobia and, you know, works to counter a legacy of silence that surrounded black gay life in mainstream media and culture. In one really poignant sequence, uh, Riggs edits together footage of black men marching in a gay pride parade and obituaries for victims of AIDS with the 1965 march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. I think that there's something to be said about this film, as much as it might be seem dated in some ways, um, both visually and in terms of the the medium and the kind of graininess of the the video, as well as the landscapes that have uh, of New York City, for example, that have so dramatically been transformed. There is a contemporaneity to the film in the fact that it's very clear that, you know, this sort of long march towards political equality is so far from over. If if you think about the exhibition as bookended by um, Karen Finley, Bronze Plaque, and Riggs' film, there's a kind of way that the exhibition is dealing with self-portraiture and also the kind of creation of all alternative communities of kinship, of... Love and caring. Yes, yes. I think that many of the works, if not all of them, really span or move between elegiac, mournful, as well as ecstatic and loving embrace of of life, as well as the loss of life. 
the works all differ, not only in, in terms of medium, but Rick's film is specifically about a black community and the experience of being black and gay and the sort of dualities of that kind of the racism and homophobia that's that's felt in that kind of life or that he experienced personally as well as giving voice to other artists or poets experienced that uh, tumultuous or traumatic uh, coming of age. So together, the works form a portrait. I mean, they, they're each function in a way as portraiture and form a collective portrait of uh, a historical moment that was shaped by loss, loss of a generation of artists. There's a parallel between Marig's film in the sense that as much as it is, is autobiographical, it's it's also so constructed through a chorus of voices. That's what my hope was in the exhibition, that move away from any um, reductive or narrow belief there's one response to the crisis or that there's one experience of of loss or one kind of queer identity, you know? Yes. Well, congratulations. It's a very moving exhibition. Oh, thank you so much. I, I hope and I really fun. appreciate your talking to, to us. And um, thank you. It's very, very beautiful. And oh, it's, um, my pleasure. it's really, you know, you should be proud of yourself. It's an amazing exhibition. Um, thank you so much.